right, our reading for today is from Psalm 23 and then Luke 24, 13 through 35. And I want to start out by saying, glory to God. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, a... Wow, there you go. Amen. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, said to him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he broke the bread and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to look at four elements that I think this passage is screaming forth. And these are uh, a continuation of things that we've talked about before. And so as this third message in Easter, we've been, uh, we've been uh, talking in John for both uh, Lent and Easter this year. And now we've finished John. And so now we're turning to Luke. Luke is a different gospel uh, than John. It's a uh, and by that, I mean it's a different book. It's not a, it doesn't contain a different gospel, but rather it's a different account of what took place. And I want to just highlight before we get into these four ideas that what Luke is doing is a harmony with John. Have you ever heard a harmony in song? You, perhaps you heard one today when we were singing. A harmony is singing the same verse or the same line, but in a different series of notes so as to emphasize and by the distinction between the lines, between the notes, beautify the song. It takes on a greater glory when you harmonize with another person while singing a song. And so the idea here is that Luke is both giving an account of the resurrection, but he's harmonizing with John. He's giving another aspect of what took place. John doesn't write down these events. And so Luke writes these down, and in God's sovereignty, they harmonize together and show us another aspect of uh, the resurrection. And I want to just talk about really briefly before we go into what we're going to be speaking of mainly today is that Luke records a, a small glimmer of what John's whole gospel was about, was that Jesus was the light of the world and he came into the world full of darkness. And that world, which was full of darkness, was not able to topple the light, but rather the light toppled the darkness. And men were blinded by uh, by their sins, by their sin nature, their, their own rebellion against God, compounding their guilt. Uh, they were unable to see God. And so Jesus goes throughout all of the nation of Israel healing people. The chief healing in John is the opening of the eyes of the man born blind, which we have done uh, multiple sermons on. It's uh, not an unfamiliar passage for us. But then that man born blind begins to testify of the blindness of the Jews. Last week when we talked about the disciples who were in fear and unbelief in the upper in that in that room that they were waiting for for Jesus or well they weren't waiting for Jesus they were just waiting to find out what they should do we looked at how they became full of unbelief because they were afraid of these Jews who were full of unbelief they who were coming to to you know supposedly get them and so this same passage shows that that repetition takes place. These disciples have their eyes blinded, and then what happens? They have their eyes opened, and as soon as their eyes are opened, Jesus vanishes. So that poetic flourish there, don't, don't miss it. It's beautiful. And so Luke records an event that harmonizes with John's whole purpose of writing the gospel. In John, Jesus says, walk uh, while we still have light, do the works of, God, of him who sent us while we still have light, for night is coming when no one can work, no one can walk. 
And so this is Luke's harmonizing with John. But Luke has his own distinctions, and I think there, there's at least four major ideas that I want to emphasize from this passage. The first major idea is that unbelief is a form of blindness, and that the blindness that these disciples have is because of their unbelief. It says that their eyes were prevented from seeing Jesus. I don't think that is necessarily only God the Father sovereignly blinding them, but rather it's also because of their unbelief. That is, God temporarily gives them a small mini micro judgment that they can't see Jesus because it's, it's grace to be able to see God and judgment when we can't. And so he, he temporarily puts a veil over their eyes. But I think that's not just God sovereignly doing that. I think that the unbelief which the disciples were walking in prevented them from seeing God's action. That's why I emphasized earlier, when we see miraculous things in our lives, if we're not responding to it with joy, there's something wrong. There's something terribly wrong. And so these disciples are blind to who Jesus is. That's the first thing that Luke tells us. The, the second thing that I want to emphasize today is the political aspect of the crucifixion, that, that the crucifixion has a claim. It, it makes a statement of what takes place in the political realm when it is not aligned with God. That is, what, what we hope in, whether if we are hoping in any political salvation, that is, the government will save us, religion will save us, etc., that is testified against by the crucifixion. And I want to go into that really uh, strongly, because that is very important for us as Christians. It majorly determines our worldview. How we see the world working, how we see society being structured, is given to us at the cross. Many of us haven't ever considered that, but I want to I emphasize how plain and how okay everyone was with the crucifixion and what that means about those societal structures. I want to talk about the foolishness that is ignorance, that is those who are, are fools uh, that cannot see the light of Christ in the Gospels. Jesus calls them fools, and if you remember rightly, that is no small word, word that Jesus gives because he actually teaches that if you call your brother an empty head or a fool, you're guilty of the judgment. So what he's saying is if you do it without a, a just judgment, then you're going to be guilty. If you just go around and call a bunch of your brothers and sisters or your neighbors, you call them fools, and you're just bitter— <laughs> at them, and they're not being foolish, and you're not saying it as a redemptive rebuke, then you're guilty of judgment. So when Jesus calls them fools, it's very, very important that we understand what Jesus is implying by him calling them fools. He's not slapping them with, he's not trying to slap shame on them, he's trying to wake them up. And what we see behind the reason why he calls them fools is very, very important. And then finally, I want to look at the centrality of the Eucharist. And by the Eucharist, I simply mean communion, which is the Lord's Supper, which we take at the end of service. It's the culmination of the worship. And in this passage, this passage shows us that although they were blind and unable to perceive the Lord, he opens their minds and opens their hearts, and then they recognize him in the meal. That is the pattern of all Christian worship, and here we see the, the major centrality or the, the teaching of how important it is uh, very plain. And so we're going to talk about that and close with that. So the first aspect of today's uh, events is you got to remember the scenario. The disciples are unable to understand what's going on. They have just followed this guy for three years. Imagine following somebody for three years. Maybe you have a friend that you've known for three years or more. 
they probably knew of Jesus before they started following him. It wasn't like, you know, he was an, you know, a nobody. Uh, he was a regular member of the community and people knew who he was. So they know this guy for three years. They trust in him to be the salvation of Israel and he gets killed. Now they believed that he was going to reestablish the throne of the, of his father, David, which is true. He is, Jesus Christ is about restoring the throne, but they believe that it will be a physical military reign, that Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, that he will topple Herod, that he will expel the Romans, and he gets killed by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the 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 people of Israel who were established as temple judges, the Sanhedrin, judge and condemn Jesus, and then hand him over to be killed, and Rome does not justify, but rather kills him. That's the scenario in which this passage happens. So they have had their entire faith dashed. They are on the rocks of reality, and it's not going well for them. It should have gone well for them. They should have responded to these events in belief. That would have been righteous living for the disciples, but they don't do that. And we're going to see exactly why they don't do that. These two disciples, they're unable to recognize Christ because they have a veil over their eyes. That veil comes from their unbelief, and that unbelief has been fueled by an ignorance of the scriptures. The reason for that ignorance was God's sovereign plan that he would then unveil and glorify Jesus Christ. But it was their duty to see and behold the promises of Christ in the scriptures. Galatians says that Abraham had the gospel preached to him and believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham foresaw the day. Hebrews tells us that David foresaw the day. In Acts 2, David, again by Peter, is is said to have foreseen the day of Christ. And those things which happened to Abraham, the, the patriarchs, the kings, they were written in the scriptures, and the prophecies concerning Christ are there. And it's the disciples' job to believe them, to search them out. They're walking along this road. Think about this. They're walking along the road. They have to use their vision in the natural to be able to see where they're going, and they're unable to even recognize somebody they've known for three years. Think about that. They're, they're not blind totally. They're not naturally blind, but they're blind spiritually speaking. Jesus, in some way, didn't look like his normal self. I don't think it was Revelation 1 Jesus with hair that's ash and a white robe and fiery eyes, but it's something. It's some difference. There's some sort of difference that they are not able to perceive who this guy is. Imagine that. Imagine one of your best friends. You see him and you're like, I I think I know who he is. You remind me of someone, but you don't know. That's amazing. And so they're unable to see because they're unable to believe. Luke 24, 15 through 16, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. We see immediately Jesus's kind heart. This is what the gospel of grace is all about, that Jesus, in seeing his disciples in the midst of unbelief, fear, worry, anxiety, hopelessness, he comes near to them. Jesus seeks them out. They don't seek out Christ. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The scripture does not explicitly say that God the Father or God the Spirit kept their eyes, but rather it says that their eyes were kept. I think that God is righteously judging them for a microsecond with a little bit of blindness in the Spirit because of the unbelief which fills their heart. 
We see this sort of interplay all throughout the scriptures. If you remember the Exodus, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then the next verse, verse two, verse three later, it then says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. These guys cannot see Jesus because they're filled with unbelief, and God is temporarily doing something that they will never forget and that we will eternally benefit from. And so God judges these guys for their unbelief. There's a veil that's placed over their eyes. And at this point, they then begin to speak with Christ about these things that they've been discussing. This is the, the thing that preoccupied their walk that day. This was their total reality. They were wanting to figure out why it's taken place that all of their hopes have been dashed on the rocks of reality and how it is the case that everything they hoped in is now devastated. It's all destroyed. It's all gone. It's like the book of Job has taken place in their spiritual life, in their, in their life, that the houses and storehouses have been wiped out. The kids have all been killed, both of the sons and the daughters. Everything's gone. And now here they are sitting, looking at pieces of glass broken on the floor, so to speak. These, these guys are filled with doubt, filled with fear, filled with anxiety. And to the natural eye, that would have been the right response to what took place. The one who they believed to be the Messiah was dead. This is an amazing situation, and yet Jesus begins to open their eyes. Unbelief, as shown by uh, Luke, is not a natural state. When we're talking about going after the miraculous, and we, we, we talk about rooting out unbelief, we talk about living faithfully to the Lord, walking in his statutes and precepts, doing the things that Christ commanded us to do, to go into all the nations and to preach the gospel, to baptize and bring them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the name of God, the life of God. To do all that God commands us to do, we must begin to believe. And so when we think about unbelief, it's not just whether you want to go to the next level in your Christian life. As in, you believe in God and you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and now you want to start doing evangelism, and so you wish to do power evangelism, and so you want to get rid of unbelief. That's not what unbelief is. It's not just this like neutral thing that you can tolerate in your heart as, uh, as a believer. It is insidious, and it is poison, and it is defiling. If you told me I can drink this glass of water and it looks perfectly clean, but then you said 1% of that water is feces, that makes the whole glass of water useless. That is what unbelief in the heart of a believer is. It makes you useless. You would not want to drink out of that glass. You'd want to like, I would break that glass. I would never use it again. It's worthless. It's worth being thrown out. A little bit of poison ruins the whole meal. And so here we see that this unbelief is defiling them. The reason we know it defiles them is because Jesus taught these same disciples in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. What can't they do? They can't see God. The unbelief which pervades their heart and defiles their heart prevents them from being able to perceive the Son of God standing in the flesh, resurrected, ready to, re- almost ready to ascend into the heavenlies, and they cannot see him right before their eyes. Unbelief prevents us from seeing the work of God in our lives, which in turn fuels unbelief. If you think, oh, well, it's just this kind of coincidence that events transpired so that the thing that I prayed for happened the way I wanted it to happen— 
If you, if you operate in that way, if that temptation to think that way presents itself, you, you know you have unbelief. Foxworthy would say, here's your sign, right? That's how you know. If you're resorting to thinking of that's a mere coincidence, then there's your sign. The idea is that unbelief multiplies. Anything that you permit in your life to exist grows. It's true in the natural. It's true in your heart. I have this uh, fence with my neighbor. I love my neighbors. They're wonderful neighbors. If you've never been to my house, come over. You can come over for dinner anytime you want. Uh, give us a day notice. But, but, and I'll make the dinner. We'll order pizza or something. But I have this neighbor, and I love this neighbor. And it's technically on my fence, but if I move it, uh, I'll destroy his bushes. So I haven't gotten with him yet. But I have this uh, stump that's right in the middle of this fence. And the stump is 50% on each side of the fence. The fence is literally there, and this stump is like growing around. Have you ever seen one of those where I've seen a picture where somebody chained a bike to a tree, and then like 70 years later, somebody found it, and the tree had grown around the bike. It was the, the, the bike and the tree had become one. It was amazing. And so this is what happens every year. I go and I cut back that little stump. And guess what I saw this spring? That stump had sent out shoots again. And those shoots had put leaves. And off those shoots come more shoots and secondary growth. It's terrible because what I haven't taken it to the root. I haven't gotten the time. I haven't taken the time to get a shovel and to get that plant out of there, I just keep thinking, well, I can kind of run it over with my lawnmower this time, and next week I'll take some prunes to it. No, it's, it's not going to work. I have to dig it out. Whatever you permit in your heart to exist will grow. Ongoing sin left in the heart will grow. Unbelief causes you to interpret events which further justify to your natural mind permitting unbelief to exist. So unbelief grows and it defiles and it prevents you from seeing God. And here the disciples who walked with a man for three years plus cannot see him. They can't recognize him. The way out, of course, is an encounter with God, which Jesus brings to these disciples. That is your confidence as a believer who recognizes unbelief in your heart. The way out is an encounter with God and God's grace is sufficient. And we know that God wants us to encounter him. So this aspect of the crucifixion that Luke highlights as being a political in nature crucifixion uh, is vital to our understanding of how we as Christians believe the world works, the way that society should be set up and structured. And what these disciples teach or what they say in their encountering Christ on the road uh, radically defines the way that we should understand these things. So I want to look at this in the, light of, uh, in the light of a political understanding, most of us, when we think of the crucifixion, we think primarily of the atonement. That is, Jesus Christ justified the ungodly by bearing the wrath of God on a cross, taking the just penalty, which was on sin. And then the, the apostles teach us rightly that he who knew no sin became a curse for us. That Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is familiar territory for us as Christians. We believe the cross is primarily speaking about the atonement. That is that God justified ungodly people. It did that, and that is the primary message of the cross. But there are secondary messages of the cross. There are secondary ideas that are just as important to understand. And without understanding those ideas, you will have a spiritualized Christianity that is detached from the natural world, that's detached from 
setting up things rightly on this earth, and you'll, you'll just be waiting for pie in the sky, so to speak. You'll have no vision for what the natural world is supposed to look like, human society is supposed to be structured like. What the crucifixion tells us about the nature of government, the nature of political systems, of religious systems that are not founded on Christ, is startling. So, with that in mind, I want to explain to you something about yourself. And understand I'm not being arrogant. You can think about this in your own life, how you've responded to every situation, everything that's happened in your, in your life that has been depressing or sad or a little bit of loss or wh- whatever, that human beings are resilient and, and uh, resentlessly hope-filled creatures. You cannot continue to live without being filled for hope, filled with hope. You would not plant a field if you didn't expect for harvest, right? I know of no one, no gardener, no, no uh, farmer who puts seed in the ground and knows or has, has very little belief that any of that seed will come up. I have seeds in my fridge, which I've saved from previous years, and I have no hope for them. So what do they do? I throw them away. You don't plant anything unless you expect it to come up. Now, maybe there's a little bit of merit in giving it a try, but you are a resentlessly hope, uh, uh, hope-filled creature. You cannot continue to live. You don't do anything. If you are hopeless, you probably resort to an existence of sitting on a couch, watching TV, and just letting life go by you. That's, that's the way that you might respond to hopelessness. And so you are inevitably putting your hope in something. And there are a number of things that you can be putting your hope in. You can be putting your hope in yourself or the individual. This is understood as either to be personal or ideological humanism. That is, you believe people are innately good or people on the whole, on the average, are going to do the right thing. And so you trust in your own ability to improve. Now, that's a lot of times, uh, if you know yourself rightly, that's false, you, you've seen it in your own life. You don't do the right things. You need someone who will on your behalf. You need someone to change you. So maybe you don't put your hope in the individual. Maybe you put it in societal structures. That is, the community will take care of us. Hillary Clinton in the 90s said it takes a community to raise a child. She's testifying. She puts her hope in the community. Individuals are not enough. We need each other. Now, there's some truth to that. God made us to be in community with each other, but that's not the answer. The answer isn't just the community. Why? Because if the individual is wrong, if you get a bunch of wrong people together, what's going to happen? They're going to be wrong. Some people put their hope in society that is not just our little local community, but the world community as a whole. You know, individual nations may get it wrong from time to time, but we can have a consortium. We can all get together and decide these things. And then mankind working in harmony. This was in the 70s. This was the cult of America, hands across America, these kind of things. You've, you've heard of them. Uh, what's that one with Coke, the world? We are, Coke equals happiness is one of them. But Coke ran a commercial at one time. That's it. Teach the world to sing. It's... If you've never seen that ad and you don't believe that humanism is a, is a religious theory, is a religious ideal, watch that video. I'll send it to you if you want. I'll, I'll send you a link to YouTube. It's amazing because what they're saying is that if we just kind of share this core value, which is appreciation for Coke, that people, that people across the world will stop committing war and genocide. And there won't be political famine. 
they believe that if they just share this value around community that everything will be okay. The problem, again, comes down to the individual. Maybe you don't put your hope in the community, but you put your hope in technical progress across history. And when you think about it, you know, 100 years before now, we were just learning to fly. That That is the Wright brothers here in uh, they left Dayton. I don't know why they left to do this. There's better winds in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And so they, you know, they learned how to fly. And now what are we doing? We're putting like little tiny photons in, <clears throat> in, uh, in contact lenses so that people who are blind or colorblind can start to see color. And I mean, we're doing amazing things, implants and brains. We're going to Mars. Mankind is doing amazing things, technically speaking. And many people are what we call modernists, that is, or, or modernism, that is, they believe that over time, man is improving over time in such a way as that given enough time, given enough of a, of a tail on the, the graph of history or the chart of history, that we will be able to overcome these base desires within ourselves to war, to commit violence, to oppress our fellow man. That given enough time, man will eventually stop committing genocide and violence against each other. The problem is, that that doesn't bear out historically speaking. The greatest genocides that have ever taken place happened in the last 200 years. And so technical progress, we've gone from being, you know, bound by the fastest thing in the world that we could ride on was a horse, all the way to moving at, you know, hundreds of miles an hour, and yet the more the morality, the moral compass of the world has not changed at all. In fact, there's every evidence in my mind that it's getting worse. And so maybe you don't put yourself in that seat, but you believe that the government locally will take care of it. That, to me, I don't think you can do a lot. I don't think that's a, a very common uh, you know, idea among us, but it certainly is among our culture. We have become status as a culture. We believe that the government will come in and save us. And so maybe you put your hope in government. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you've been burned up by government, but you put your hope in religious systems as a whole, that cultural Christianity will take care of the problem. I got news for you. Cultural Christianity, devoid of Christ, devoid of being able to change the individual, just nominal Christianity is not enough to change society. It's not enough to put your hope in. It will fail. And that is what the crucifixion of Christ testifies because of how politically charged the event is in this justification. The crucifixion, understood rightly, demonstrates the folly of trusting in anything other than Christ. And I want to prove that to you by surveying really briefly what these disciples say, and then looking at every dimension of how the events in the crucifixion answer those hopes that we just talked about. The crucifixion was not a quiet overthrow or a coup d'etat. If you don't know that phrase, it just it's French for a stroke of state. It means that someone comes in, sweeps in like a flood, like a tsunami coming across the land, and wipes out the government silently. And then after the revolution takes place, they announce, here's a new government. That is a common thing that happens in the, in the realm of man. But the crucifixion was not a coup. It was not some secret thing that happened. It was agreed to by every aspect of government and society. And that's what the disciples say here. First thing, Judas Iscariot, the individual, he did not overcome the devil, but rather succumbed to the devil's temptation and betrayed his best friend. If you have any belief that the individual is sovereign, that the individual will save us, that if people just change, look at Judas Iscariot. 
his best friend or someone who should have been his best friend, he gave up. And so Judas testifies against the individual. The Pharisees conspire together. There was not a division in the Pharisees as in these other groups of Pharisees came and warned Jesus to flee because no, the Pharisees all conspire together. They all agreed. They all commonly are saying in the scriptures, in the gospels, look, see the whole world is going out to him and see that you are gaining nothing. They're saying our religious power, our stronghold over the culture, our stronghold over these people is falling apart because of the ministry of Christ, and they testify against the religious systems devoid of God. Pontius Pilate, the the governor of the region, did not justify Jesus, but rather condemned. He used the wrong judgment. He gave in to a group of uh, mobsters, these guys, these Pharisees, these Sadducees who come to him and they say that you should crucify this man. And he begins to look into these matters, but he doesn't do the right thing. He condemns Jesus Christ unjustly. Jesus Christ, who did literally nothing. It wasn't like it was a lesser murder charge. You hear about these cases where instead of going for man- murder, they go for manslaughter. It wasn't malicious. It was an accident. That's not even in play in this scenario. Pontius Pilate is condemning someone who has never sinned. And so here we see that government not understood rightly, not filled with God, not resting on the shoulders of the Christ is wrong government. Every aspect of society was involved in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The mobs were the people, the, the vox populi, the voice of the people spoke, crucify him. And so democracy is shown to be faulty. Every aspect of society not dependent on Christ, not resting in Christ, is faulty and will fail. Luke 24, 19 through 20, he said, Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, look how they justify Jesus in the first verse, and look how they condemn what took place in the second. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and the people. Look at how totalizing that phrase is. Jesus Christ is a mighty prophet, a good prophet, the greatest prophet, the most righteous man who ever lived. And the Jews in their common understanding knew that no one who was a sinner could call upon God, could pray to God and have God do something for them. And so when they say he's a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God, they're saying not only is he giving great teaching, he's performing miracles. And we know that by his miracles, he's demonstrated as being righteous before God. That's verse 19. And look at verse 20. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. This was not something that was uh, a little small minority. Everybody agreed. It, you hear every once in a while of you know church uh, events where you know, maybe the Southern Baptists get together and vote on something, or the Presbyterians got together and voted on something, or whatever. You know, a denomination holds concert, and they all speak together. All the Pharisees were involved. All of the crowd was involved. All of the Romans were okay with this. This wasn't some sort of secret murder. It wasn't an assassination plot. It it would not make a very good novel. If you're looking for one of those uh, Rainbow Six style novels where somebody does a political assassination, that would be a terrible way to write one. This was not something that was secret. It wasn't a conspiracy that was hidden. It was a conspiracy done in the open. Everybody involved said, okay, we're good with this. We want it. The greatest prophet of all history, the most righteous man of all time was killed for something that he didn't do. 
And it wasn't even something. There was nothing that they were able to present. And it was not an accident of justice. You hear about various stories. There's been a number of them over the years. It wasn't just an accident of justice. The jury, the judge, the, ac- the defense, and the accusation were all involved in it. The crucifixion shows us that all of human society and all government that is not squarely set upon the sol- shoulders of Christ will fail. What is our great hope in our Advent readings? And the government will be upon his shoulders. That's what the crucifixion says. The crucifixion is the toppling of statism. It's the toppling of democracy. It's the topping, toppling of hoping in religious systems. It shames and condemns the individual and the hope that someone puts on the community. It undoes everything because all of them were guilty. All of them were complicit. And so the crucifixion in its aspect as a political statement is vital to understand. Why is this so vital to understand as being part of the gospel? Because it teaches us not to put our hope in anything other than Christ. It teaches you to not depend on, to not idolize some human set uh, system, but rather to rest and to trust on God. It's vital. It has gospel implications. So, that being said, let's move to the disciples really quick. The disciples are foolish, and we've already talked about how Jesus said, if you say to your brother that you're a fool, you're guilty of the judgment, he calls them fools, so his judgment is just, it's righteous, it's not an accusation without merit, but rather a right accusation. He calls them fools, and when he calls them fools, it shows us that he is depending on them to make some sort of connection that they should have made. It's not a good thing to go around calling somebody fools, but if you see somebody doing something foolish, it's a good thing to warn them, right? And so Jesus warns them. He, he opens their eyes to, to something. And the disciples, in their accounting, in their way that they've been looking at the situation, they have lost all hope that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and they have completely gone back on everything that they've understood and known. We remember Simon Peter rightly said to Jesus Christ, you are... You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so this is all gone. All of this understanding, all of this revelation is gone, and the disciples are filled with faithlessness. They have completely uh, changed their mind about whether or not Jesus Christ would be the king to save Israel, to save his people. And that, that, uh, that revelation is completely gone. And we see that clearly, Luke 24, 21, past tense, but we had hoped. They're not saying we're still holding out hope. They're not saying that here's an understanding of what we've been doing. They say, but we had hoped. And look at the aspect of time in this verse. It says, but we had hoped that he would be the one to save Israel. Future salvation, but rather not a past one. Christ rebukes these disciples for their faithless response to the crucifixion. He calls them fools. Why does he call them fools? Because they should not have responded in faithlessness. He calls them fools because he expects them to have understood properly the meaning of all the scriptures. And he says that explicitly. Luke 24, 25 through 27, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now look at this. All that the prophets have spoken is the area, it's the uh, circle, if you will, in a Venn diagram of what Jesus is talking about. All that the prophets have spoken 
Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus Christ is saying in verse 26 that there is something that the prophets are speaking which tells you that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer. And then verse 27, we see him begin to open their minds and beginning with Moses and and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So look at this square. There's a square or rectangle, if you will. If you've ever seen a Venn diagram, uh, hopefully your fifth grade geometry or algebra class would have covered these. There's a circle, there's a big circle, and he says all the things that the prophets have written. And you know that in a Venn diagram, the overlap between two circles is the context. It's, it's what is being talked about. He says, you didn't believe all that the prophets have written. And then he goes and makes another circle, so to speak. And it says that he went into all the scriptures and interpreted the things concerning himself. It, now notice closely, it does not say that he interpreted all the things in the scripture but rather it says that he interpreted in all the scriptures the things. The distinction is very important because this is our job as Christians. Our job as Christians is to make use of the Old Testament scriptures, the original Bible for the first hundred years of the church, to look for the things that concern Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that all of the prophets, everything that they've been written testifies about him. The point is not that all of the scriptures were taught that night. It would be absolutely impossible for that to take place because you can't exhaust them. And so our job is not to go around and, you know, just rest in our understanding of the Christian faith, but rather we should be on the business. It should be our business to be searching them out. If you're unable to see Christ in all the scriptures, then we are just like the disciples, ignorant of the risen Christ and unable to see him. This is our job. This is what it means for us to be avid readers, people who are searching out to see Christ in every, every passage. Luckily for us, luckily for them, this is not the final word. Jesus does not say, oh, fools, and leave them there. He says, oh, fools, and then he opens their mind, he preaches to them, and then after, he breaks bread with them. This is where we're going to be ending today. This isn't the final word. Jesus calls them to faith and to fellowship, and he invites them. uh, they, They ask him to stay, and then he basically invites them at that point to the meal. Jesus uh, demonstrates to us the kind heart of God. And this is where we understand the centrality of the Eucharist. Just as the crucifixion had political claims, as well as claims of our sin and our necessity of atonement before God, what Jesus does in restoring the disciples teaches us about what the Eucharist means, what it means for us to eat of the body and blood of the Lord. Luke 24, 30 through 32, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were open, verse 31. In the breaking of bread, Christ is recognized with these disciples. It's not in the scriptures alone. Many of us have put our faith in the scriptures and we have such a low view of what it means for God, Jesus Christ, to have instituted a meal that his disciples were to do continually. And here we see a little bit of a parallel between that meal and the meal we're about to take. 
As soon as he is visible to them, he vanishes. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? It is wonderful to have your minds opened to the understanding that Christ is in all the scriptures. That's wonderful. And look at what the disciples say, that their minds having been opened to see Christ in all the scriptures, their hearts begin to burn. So the mind and the heart are both now being attuned to the revelation of Jesus Christ as prophesied by all the prophets, by Moses, the Psalms, the prophets. And yet there's something that is still lacking. They still don't have fellowship. They still don't see him yet. Their minds are being opened. Their hearts are beginning to burn, but they're still blind. And when are they, are they not blind, but rather healed when he broke the bread. And that's what the centrality of the Eucharist is all about. Though Christ is not present bodily with us, he has given us a revelation of himself in the scriptures, which speaks to the mind and the heart, but there is something more. We must eat and drink. Luke 24, 33 through 35, this is what the disciples do after having been eat, having eaten the Eucharist, which I believe that this was. Uh, they then go and tell the world starting with the disciples. This is the mission sending of the resurrection account. The disciples run back. Notice they were traveling to a town that was many miles away from Jerusalem. In that culture at that time, they don't have cars. They don't have flashlights. They have to use torches and camels and, or feet to walk. And they run back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night, a most dangerous time to be on a journey. But they don't care. The reason they don't care is they've seen the resurrected Christ, they've communed with him, and they must share it. They're filled with God's revelation, and they've got to tell. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. This is a many, many mile journey. Journey. This is a very dangerous thing that they're doing, and yet it's worth the risk. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has indeed risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened to him to to them on the road and how he was known in the breaking of bread. It's not enough for you to learn about Christ intellectually. It's not even enough for you to have some sort of emotional response. You must fellowship with him. So we're going to do that. Father, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ in your scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for Luke and his gospel that you so moved on his heart as to be able to teach us something about this meal that we're about to take. We pray, Lord, that you would give us an understanding, a revelation of Jesus Christ that would go beyond the head, that would go beyond heart and emotionalism, but that we would truly know you. And Lord, more importantly, that you would know us. Lord, we pray that we would move beyond the fringes and that we would have true communion with you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.